This morning I'll be reading Ephesians 2, verses 11 through 22. So hear the word of the Lord this morning. Therefore, remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh, called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands, remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who are far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ, for he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who are far off and peace to those who are near. For through him, we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him, you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God, by the Spirit. Let's find the reading of God's Word. Let's pray. Our gracious Heavenly Fathers, we come to this Word this morning to hear from you the, the density and richness of who we are in Christ. Lord, may you refresh and encourage our hearts. May you instill a fresh zeal and desire and passion to be what you have made us to be. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You've probably heard of the seven wonders of the world before. And the seven wonders of the world have received that title because they all, in their own way, stand as these monuments uh, testifying to the ingenuity, the imagination, and the architectural capability of human beings in a time when there was not really much technology to make those things easy. So, for example, if you happen to be traveling on the Nile River, as one is wont to do, you're going to no doubt gaze in wonder on the Great Pyramid of Giza, which is great because it is made out of two million stone blocks, each block weighing two tons, and this was made before the invention of any hydraulic construction machines. Or, if you happen to be near Beijing, China, you will see the world's largest building construction project, the Great Wall of China, stretching 5,500 miles in length. So if you can run an eight-minute mile, you times that by 5,500 without stopping, and that's how long it would take you to make it. So, so great may be an inadequate description of that. Or if you're interested in the remnants of the Roman Empire, you can go to the Colosseum today in Rome, which was built in the first century by the emperor Vespasian, so not too, too long after the events of Jesus. And this was the first sports and entertainment complex of, it, of its kind. So if you're interested in sports and entertainment at that time, you could maybe get a ticket there. It holds 50,000 people, and you could watch gladiators slaughter each other for sport. This is sports and entertainment back then. So all of those are considered architectural wonders because they were far beyond their time for what they were demonstrating and building in terms of human ingenuity and architectural design. There was nothing like them. And yet, they may look impressive to the eyes of man, but none of these even comes close to claiming the title of the greatest wonder in the world. Believe it or not, I just read to you about the greatest wonder in the world. 
It's the church. The church is, in the eyes of the Lord, the greatest wonder in the world. And the reason for that is because God the Father is its architect. Jesus Christ is the sole funder of that construction project by his own life. And the Holy Spirit is the construction project manager of the church. No other wonder in the world can claim that as its oversight committee. The church is the greatest wonder in the world because when history draws to a close, the curtain of history draws to a close, the only institution that you know of now that will be left standing is the church. Political institutions, societal institutions, academic institutions, those will all pass away, but the church will remain in heaven. Now, don't misunderstand me. When I'm talking about the church, don't look around and see these four walls and think this building is somehow going to be standing when the drama of history draws to a close. It, it probably won't even make it that far. Let's be honest. <laughs> what I am talking about is the people that God has redeemed through the blood of Christ. That is the church. So let me get theologically nitpicky for a second. This is a Presbyterian's favorite pastime, theological nitpicking. You did not go to church this morning. Church did not start at 10.35 this morning. Rather, you as the church assembled this morning. The church has, you didn't come to the church, you assembled as the church this morning. Once the benediction has been given, once the doors to this building are locked, the church will not stop. It will not temporarily cease until we gather next week. Instead, the gathered church will become the scattered church. You will continue to be the church scattered as salt and light in a dark and decaying world. The church is the greatest wonder in the world because you, needy, rebellious sinners, you get to be part of the church. You get to be called by the Savior to be part of his building construction project. And so as we walk through Ephesians 2, 11 to 22, here's what my goal is this morning. I want you to relish more and more the reality that to be in Christ is to be part of the church. Those are inseparably linked together. To be in Christ is to be a part of the church, which means you get to be a part of the greatest wonder in the world. And if you are one who considers yourself outside the church or you're keeping the church at arm's length, I want to fill you with a divine jealousy for the church. I want you to be inside and want you to experience the reality of the church from the fellowship within. Well, first, to relish this reality more and more, Paul says you need to remember what you once were. To appreciate what it means to be in the church, you need to remember what it was once like to be outside the church. Look at verses 11 and 12 with me. Paul says, Therefore, remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh, called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands, remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope, and without God in the world. So there are things that we like to remember. We like to remember past achievements. We like to remember happy and celebratory occasions. And then there's things we like to forget about. We like to forget about foolish decisions we made, sinful past actions, failed attempts. We like to forget embarrassing moments, and the list could go on and on of the things we would like to forget. And what Paul does here is he flips those categories. He reminds us of the things that we would often put in the category of, I'd like to forget about those things. So it's as if Paul's bringing up all those bad memories that you've tried to forget. And he's not only saying, 
reflect on these. He's saying, remember these. Think about these. Do not forget about them. But these are far worse than bad memories. He wants, specifically Gentiles, to remember their previous state of spiritual destitution and distance from God. So a Gentile was anyone who was outside the spiritual and national boundaries of the nation of Israel. So it was, I'm guessing 99.9% of you would be considered a Gentile. There may be an exception here. Gentiles lived outside of the light of revelation that God had uniquely given to the nation of Israel. They were in darkness because they didn't have access to the special revelation that God had uniquely given to the nation of Israel. And because of that, there were five dreadful spiritual realities that were true of them that Paul lists in verse 12. He first says, you were separated from Christ. In other words, you were Christless. You, you were sinners in need of a savior that had no knowledge of the savior you needed. And then he says, you were once excluded from citizenship in Israel. So you were Christless and you were kingdomless. In other words, you had no citizenship in the one kingdom citizenship reality that, that mattered. You were citizens of the kingdom of darkness, not citizens of the kingdom of God. And then he says, thirdly, you were strangers to the covenants of promise. You're Christless, you're kingdomless, and you were promiseless. You had no knowledge of the only way of salvation revealed by God through his covenants to the people of Israel. And then fourthly, he says, you had no hope. You were living under a thick cloud of hopelessness that your mythology, your philosophy, your idol worship could not penetrate. You were hopeless. And then he says, finally, unless you weren't depressed already, he says, you were without God. You were godless. Everything is building this. With each one, he's showing that they were further and further and further and further removed from the realities that they're now experiencing in Christ. They were utterly spiritually destitute. And it's interesting, with this last one especially, think about the Gentiles of that time. Think of Greek and Roman culture. I think the one thing you could not describe them as is, is godless. They had idols everywhere, as far as the eye could see. If you were to walk into Rome and Greek cultures, you would think these people are extremely religious. They have a god of, of idol of every kind, and yet, Paul says, they did not know the one true and living God, the one God who is real. And so it, it just goes to show, you can be extremely religious and yet extremely lost if you do not know the true and living God. So Paul says in some, you were Christless, you were kingdomless, you were promiseless, you were hopeless, and you were godless. So before God saved you and brought you into his fold in the church, this was your personal status and your spiritual reality. And Paul says, remember this, reflect on this, don't forget about this. Why does Paul want us to remember such a sad spiritual state of destitution? I mean, doesn't God remember our sins no more? Doesn't he cast them as far away as the east is from the sea? He throws them into the bottom of the sea. It seems like Paul is drudging those up from the bottom of the sea and saying, remember how awful it once was for you? So why remember them? Let's be clear. He is not reminding us of what we once were to perpetually trap us in a prison of shame and guilt. Paul is not saying every day you need to wake up, you need to go look in the mirror, and you need to give five self-loathing affirmations of what you once were. That's not what he's saying. Paul is very careful to say that 
These were formerly true of you, not presently. He says, at one time, you formerly. So he's not bringing these up to say that, look how awful of a person you are. Instead, he reminds us of what we formerly were to help us put to death any sense of spiritual entitlement, to slay any sense of self-righteousness. Someone was asked the question recently, cultural analyst, said, what do you see as one of the greatest issues of the rising generation? The answer was the sense of entitlement that they have. What a previous generation used to call privileges, they they view as demands and rights. And whether you think that's true or not, I think you can modify that question and say it like this. What is one of the greatest threats to a healthy Christian life and a healthy church? The answer would be a self-righteous spiritual sense of entitlement. A sense that God brought me into the church because the church really could use me. Or God saved me because I'm that blue chip recruit that he could really use on my team. I have a lot to offer. It's a sense of walking in and saying, there's two kind of people. A person who walks into the room and says, there you are. And a person who walks in the room and says, here I am. Hat tip, uh, Mike Bruce for teaching me that. The sense of spiritual entitlement walks in the church and says, here I am. And yet Paul is going after that subtle and deadly mindset where you would dare to say to God, you're welcome. When the only words that are proper to address God are, thank you. Thank you. All is of grace. Everything you get to experience in the Christian life is all grace. None of it at all is any wages that God is paying you for what he owes you. And so... Here's a good question to reflect on. Does the fact that you get to be in Christ and part of the church, does that stir your heart to say thank you? If not, you have some remembering to do. Or here's another question. Do you spend more time complaining about the state of the church that God has graciously brought you into experience than you do expressing gratitude to God that he has made you a part of the church? If that's the case, you have some remembering to do. Now, granted... Paul is reflecting on the church in an idyllic way, an idealistic way. We, we know there's no earthly church where all of the realities he's describing here are perfectly demonstrated. You won't find it here. You won't find it anywhere else. So many people will lob criticism at the church, like saying, it's full of hypocrites. And my response is, you're absolutely right, and there's always room for one more. So please, <laughs> come in. We have to remember, we are not what yet we will be. By, by the grace of God, we are not what we once were. That is the reality of the church. Well, also, Paul reminds us of what we formerly were in order, and this is odd, to foster unity in the church. He tells us what we once were, spiritually destitute, to bring us more unity. Uh, back in May of 2020, the Babylon Bee, it struck satire gold when it produced this headline. Hollywood celebrities spell, we're all in this together using their private yachts. Now, I don't know if you saw that headline, but what they were attempting to show was that a vacuous catchphrase attempting to promote unity in the culture spoken by a celebrity from their 10,000 square foot home or their private yacht to someone who had just lost their job and their livelihood doesn't really foster unity, okay? But Paul is saying that there is actually one reality where I can honestly say to you, we are all in this together. It's the fact that you're a rebellious sinner who needs a savior. We share that in common. Whatever status you have in this world, I don't care how many degrees you have, how much bigger your bank account is than anyone else's or how much smaller it is than anyone else's, what you know or don't know, we have something in common. 
We have a desperate need for a savior. We fall short of the glory of God. Our hearts are desperately wicked in need of a transplant. And so apart from Christ, we have a unity. Or apart from Christ, we have this unity. We are dead in sin. We are dominated by sin. We are doomed because of our sin. And without Christ, we are utterly spiritually destitute without him. This, oddly enough, is one of the grounds of the unity of the church, that we stand on the level playing field at the foot of the cross. Someone has said it like this. The church is a fellowship of hungry beggars who have found the bread of life. The church is a communion of parched pilgrims who have found the fountain of living water. Which leads us to our second point. To relish more and more the reality of being part of the church, we need to remember what Christ has done. This is where Paul spends the bulk of his time because this is where the focus of our hearts needs to be. Look at verse 13. He says, but now in Christ Jesus. So he opens verse 13 by signaling, it's time to take your eyes off yourself. You've looked at what you formerly once were long enough and you need to look at Christ who has brought about a great reversal. So look at verse 13. Let's break down each phrase. He says, but now. Whenever you see that in one of Paul's letters, you know this is the great gospel conjunction. A great reversal is coming. And he says, in Christ Jesus, his favorite phrase, in Christ, the source of all gospel treasure. And here's the great reversal. You who are once far off have been brought near. And here's how it was accomplished. By the blood of Christ. So notice at the end of verse 12, it ends with us being far off from God. We're without God. And verse 13 ends with us being brought near to God. And it's what's in between that makes all the difference. In Christ Jesus. Jesus sought you in a stranger, wandering from the fold of God. He to rescue you from danger interposed his precious blood. Our former Christless, hopeless, kingdomless, promiseless, godless state could not be altered or reversed by anything you could do. There was nothing you could do to alter that state. It was only by the righteousness and blood of the lamb without spot or blemish that that state could be reversed. And now what Paul does is in verses 14 to 18, he's going to bring us into the gospel treasury storehouse. He's going to walk us in there and he's going to start showing us some of the gospel treasures and each treasure he shows us, he says to you in Christ, this is yours. This is what your inheritance is in Christ. This is your treasure. You know, in this world, we are impressed by a lot of things. So I'm, I'm thinking lately of, of headlines in the news that, that impress me. When I saw how much Elon Musk was buying Twitter for, or apparently maybe buying it for, that was impressive. That's a lot of money. Or when I heard about the, the settlement amount that Johnny Depp got in his defamation suit, I thought, you know, that's a lot of money. Uh, but here, in verses 14 to 18, we have treasures and riches that far outshine those riches. These are extravagant, eternal riches. The first one is that Christ is our peace. Look at verse 14, the beginning of verse 14. Paul says, for he himself is our peace. I think if, if someone would be told that they could have permanent lasting, joyful peace in this world, but they had, to, they had to give up everything. I think most people would give it up. People long for peace. And yet we often don't know what, what it is. What is peace? Well, peace biblically defined is when all is as God originally designed it to be. Peace is when everyone and everything is in right relationship and right order 
to the God who made them. It's when everything is functioning under him, in relationship to him, and then thus in relationship to one another. In other words, peace is prior to Genesis 3 in the Bible. That's what peace is. Peace is when all was as it should be. And yet we realize that peace, though a human longing, is not a human possession because of Genesis 3. Sin has entered the world, it has shattered peace. It caused us to rebel against God and to be in conflict with one another. And yet our world has no lack of opportunities to try and attempt to bring peace. Many pathways to peace have been proposed. If we just had more diplomacy, if we just had more legislation, more restrictions, if we just had more tolerance, more diversity and equity training, more celebrities telling us we're all in this together, then, then we'd have peace. And yet some of those proposals can for a time bring peacefulness, but they cannot usher in peace. At best, any human attempt divorced from God and the gospel merely addresses symptoms and it only ushers in a peacefulness that is temporary and superficial. Any solution to peace divorced from God and the gospel can only bring temporary and superficial peace because the heart of the problem with peace is the problem of the hostile human heart. And unless you can reach in and change that, unless you can deal with that permanently and truly, you cannot deal with peace. That is why Paul says, Christ himself is our peace. Our peace is not some strategy. Our peace is a person, the Lord Jesus Christ. What name was he given in Isaiah in that great prophecy? The Prince of Peace. He is the only one who can usher it in. And so in the church, if the church wants to know peace, as individual members of the church, you must know Christ. If you want to be a peacemaker in the church, you must continue to look to Christ and abide in him. And if a church would be a peaceful place, Christ must be the center of the church. He is the only one who has the power and ability to perform spiritual heart transplant surgery. He can only, he's the only one who can change the human heart, restore things and make them right. He's the only one who can make us be forgiving people. He's the only one who can say, I have forgiven you so much, therefore you can forgive much. I have loved you much, therefore you can love much. So if the church would be a place of peace, a echo of Eden on earth, Christ must be the center. Well, another treasure of the gospel that Paul brings out to us is that Christ has brought reconciliation. Look again at verse 14, especially at that second phrase in verse 14. It says, Christ himself is our peace who has made us both one. And then jump down to verse 16. He makes a parallel statement there. He says, and he might reconcile us both to God in one body, through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. So what Paul is doing now is he's showing that Christ is our peace, and here's one of the cascading benefits that flows from that. It is that we are reconciled to one another. There is a horizontal implication to our vertical peace with Christ. And it's, it's inseparably connected. If you love God, you will love one another. If you're at peace with Christ, you will be reconciled to one another. And he takes people... So what Christ, he takes people who were once hostile to each other and he reconciles them into the church. What does reconciliation mean? Reconciliation means to take those who are, enemy, who are enemies with one another and make them friends. To take those who were once against each other, at odds with one another, and make them at peace with one another. And this reconciliation is purchased 
by Christ and is the inheritance of every single believer of all kinds. So in one sense, reconciliation isn't something necessarily we pursue, although it is. It's really a benefit of Christ that we seek to apply, it's, that we seek to affect. And Paul specifically speaks of two groups that you would have, from the eyes of your mind, would have said this is impossible for them to be at peace with one He's speaking of Jews and Gentiles. So picture today, in your mind, the two groups that are most hostile to each other, the most at odds with one another. And now imagine people from those two hostile groups standing in the same church pew, singing together in Christ alone. That's a little bit like what Paul is describing is happening actually in the church in Ephesus between Jews and Gentiles. Jews and Gentiles, to make an understatement, despised each other. Let me give you a flavor of that despisal between the two groups. Jews believed that the Gentiles were created by God to be fuel for the fires of hell. That was what Jews believed was Gentiles' purpose. And listen to this. If a Jewish girl married a Gentile boy, a funeral service would be held by the Jewish community because they believed that that Jewish girl was as good as dead, having left the faith, having wandered from the fold. Now you thought you had problems, maybe enemies. They had issues. And it was a two-way street because Gentiles often blamed and persecuted Jews for societal ills because they did not render worship to Caesar or to the Greek and Roman gods of their culture. So there was social hostility between them, but there was also, and Paul's speaking of this, a ceremonial division between them, which kept them apart. Paul refers to this in the last half of verse 14 into the beginning of verse 15. Look there with me. It says, Jesus has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances. So you're reading through the Old Testament, you're doing your Bible in a year, you get to Exodus and Leviticus and Numbers and Deuteronomy, and you realize that there's all these ceremonial laws, all these rituals, all these purification things you have to go through. And what God put that in place for was to emphasize the fact that God is holy and those who approach him must be holy. God is clean and pure and radiant and those who approach him must be likewise. And he gave these rituals to the Jews and the Gentiles did not follow these rituals. They did not follow these things. So they were considered unclean. So for example, when Peter is told to go to the house of a Gentile, Cornelius, he's not gonna go. He said, I've I've never made myself unclean. Why would I go to a Gentile's house? So this was the, the ceremonial division that existed between them. And it was demonstrated visually in the temple during Jesus' day. In the temple during Jesus' day, big temple built by Solomon, later by added to by Herod. The furthest outer court from the inner part of the, the temple was called the court of the Gentiles. That Gentiles could come there, but there was this huge, thick, concrete block, five-foot-high wall, and signs plastered all over it in Greek and Latin that said trespassers will be executed. Okay, we have signs today that say, do not trespass, you will be prosecuted. This, was, this went a little further. It said, trespassers will be executed on site. So talk about division and hostility. And yet, what does Jesus do? He tears down every barrier. He abolishes every division that existed between them so that he might reconcile them together in the church. So when Jesus dies, what happens to the curtain in the temple? It tears from top to bottom. That tearing from top to bottom isn't just signaling that we get to dwell in the presence of God, that we have unhindered access to God. 
but it also symbolizes that everyone who believes in Christ might come in and they come in together as a family, as reconciled people. Christ brings reconciliation within the church despite all of our differences, despite all the things that could divide us because we're united in the fact that we need him as our savior and that we have him as our savior. And when we recognize that, Christ becomes our greatest love and our identity in Christ becomes our most important identity. And we end up loving those who love our Savior. We end up having fellowship with those who share our same identity. Think about this. We, we see this take place in human relationships all the time. We find camaraderie with those who share our passion and interests. So I, I live across the street from a dog park, ironically enough. And I see people all the time bonding over these lower life forms that they share in common with one another. It is true, technically, if you read Genesis, animals are below humans. And also, when we have a shared identity with someone that we come across, we feel an affinity toward them. For example, um, my wife is from North Dakota. She's very proud of it. And whenever she sees a North Dakota license plate in Florida, she either knows the person or becomes friends with them somehow because she has a shared identity that's very rare in the world over. There's not many people from North Dakota. Mark used to say, there's a pretty girl behind every tree in North Dakota. And I found the one. Um, So in Christ, uh, rabbit trail, in Christ, this natural connection that we have becomes supernatural because Christ is our greatest love and our identity in, in him becomes our most important identity. And that creates a bond and a unity that nothing on earth can compare with or should compare with. Now we have to recognize we always struggle with an identity crisis, an identity disorder. For example, we're always taking other things that are not as important or shouldn't be part of what defines us and making them the thing that defines us or the most important thing that defines us. And then we create divisions. We take our political ideologies and we make that our most important identity and therefore we have division in the church with those who see things differently with us. We take our economic status, we make that our most important identity, more than Christ, and that makes us at odds with one another. There's so many things that we can take and make more important than our love for Christ and our identity in Christ that creates division. Therefore, the role of the church is to constantly keep its eyes fixed on Christ, keep our focus on our identity in Christ so that that becomes the center of which everything rotates. That's the hub at the center of the wheel around which everything rotates. The only time a church should divide is when the essential truths or undeniable morals of the Bible are being compromised, distorted, or denied. That's the only time the church is to divide. Because when you sacrifice unity for the sake of truth, you get neither. You don't get unity and you don't get truth. You get nothing. You get a, you get a facade. Yet, the goal of the church is in Christ, grounded in his word, in his truth, we want to make visible the reconciliation that we have in Christ. The church is the reconciliation of Christ made visible to the world that is always at odds with one another. The last gospel treasure that Paul holds before our eyes is that in Christ we have access to the Father. Look at verse 18 with me. It says, For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. Saying that you, you go to, as it were, the, the Father's study and you don't find his door locked ever. It is always open, always wide open. He always welcomes all of his children. Remember how he ended in verse 12? You were without God. What he says here in verse 18, you are never without God. 
His eye is always upon you. His heart is always open to you. His ear is always attentive to you. And it's not just to you individually. It's as a family together, collectively, we all have access to the Father. Jesus taught us to pray, our Father in heaven. There's a corporate sense of connection that we have in Christ with the Father. So a greater unity is forged in the church because we not only share a need for Christ, but we share an inheritance in Christ and all the riches that he has poured out on us. So when it comes to the gospel, there is no spiritual economic distinction among us. We are all richly blessed in Christ with every spiritual blessing. We all get to share in the unsearchable riches of Christ together. And then finally, more briefly, to relish more and more the reality of being part of the church, remember your new identity in Christ. So Paul began this section with your former identity. You were once kingdomless, hopeless, promiseless, and he ends with, that's the, that's the case no longer. You have a new identity that you need to remember. Look at verse 19. It says, So then, you are no longer strangers and aliens, but, as that great gospel conjunction again, you are. Let me pause there. What Paul is about to unfold to you is your identity in Christ is now part of being in the church. To be in Christ is to be in the church. You cannot be in Christ without being in the church. Those two things are inseparably linked together. For someone to say, I believe in Christ or I'm a Christian, but I want nothing to do with the church is an oxymoron. That is an identity disorder, as it were, for a Christian. Paul says there are three new aspects of your identity in Christ that are true, and each of these is a different metaphor for the church. So Paul takes out one of the treasures from the the gospel treasure room, and it's the diamond called the church, and he he spins it in three different ways to show you three facets of this diamond. The first angle is found in the middle part of verse 19. He says, you are fellow citizens with the saints. So to be in Christ is to receive a new passport, and on that passport is stamped resident of the kingdom of God, a new citizen of the kingdom of God with all the saints. This means that the church is an embassy of heaven. The church is an embassy, an outpost of the kingdom of heaven in which as fellow citizens, we're drawing our attention to the city which is to come, that we would follow the king, that we long for his kingdom. And the second angle he turns that church diamond is found at the end of verse 19. He said, you are members of the household of God. So to be in Christ is not just to receive a new passport, it's receive a new house key. Christ hands you a house key to the Father's house, and he says, my Father's house is now your house. And you walk up to that house with a welcome mat laid out, you open the door, and as you open the door, you see filled in that house your brothers and sisters in Christ, the family of God bursting, you know, in all, filling all the places, singing and uh, worshiping. That's your family. To be in Christ is to be a part of a new family. You know, there are a few greater earthly joys that my soul loves than the fellowship of a local church family. Yeah, I, I'm jealous for people not just to attend the church. I, I love that people attend the church. I mean, it is job security to a degree, but I want people not just to attend, but to have fellowship in the church. You realize there's a difference, right? You can attend and never have fellowship with the church. But fellowship is what the scriptures describe as being a part of the church. That's the, the reality, the, the relational tasting of the joys of reconciliation and relationship within the church. I mean, to have a family that holds the truth together, 
to have a family that shares wisdom and insight with you, to have a family that rejoices when you rejoice, that weeps with you when you're weeping, to have a family that gathers with you and worships the same God and Savior. That is the earthly foretaste of heaven. Well, the final angle of the church diamond is found in verses 21 and 22. Look there with me. It says this, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him, you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. In other words, Paul's saying, the greatest wonder in the world is the church. It is a holy temple in which God dwells. All the seven wonders of the world, whatever your list is, none of those can claim that God dwells in their midst. They're, they're empty when it comes to God's special presence. Yes, God is present everywhere, but he uniquely dwells in a special way with his church. And so the church is where God's presence dwells, and that makes all the difference. That's why it's the wonder of the world. And also, none of the seven wonders of the world have this promise given to them. I will build my church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Only the church possesses that promise, which sets it apart and above every other wonder in the world, which is why the church is the greatest wonder in the world. So to be in Christ is to be part of the church. So I would just encourage you, be what you are. If you are in Christ, be a part of the church. Enjoy its fellowship. It is the greatest wonder in the world. Let's pray.